So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without concerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you fall asleep. But if we are more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. My name's Cam. If I haven't met you, I would love to. Um, yeah, man, it's a beautiful day. Happy summer. We're on the later half now. The 4th of July hits, and it's just quickly into August, and the world gets real. But anyways, I'm really excited for this morning. Um, we've been going through a series on worship. Um, and it might not be the worship series you were expecting. We've been actually tracing through uh, the rhythms and the flow of our worship gatherings. So I don't know if you came from a liturgical background or if that's, if that's natural or normal to you, but we've been walking through basically every step of the service. So we start with a call to worship, and then we talk about uh, confession of sin, and we've talked about the assurance of our pardon. And even last week, Jeremy talked about the sermon and the word and worship and how these two things go together. And this morning, what I'm going to talk about is communion or the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist. All these phrases are going to be used interchangeably. Um, but it's a confusing thing at times, right? We can dismiss it or we can overdo it. So I'm hoping that this morning we can really find out what uh, the scriptures teach about the Lord's Supper. So would you pray with me and then we will get into it. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. Um, we thank you for your spirit. Uh, that you're, you're not out there or somewhere else, but that you're here with us. Um, and what we need this morning is not necessarily just more information or more facts, but we need to encounter the God of the Bible. We need to encounter you. We need to experience your spirit. So through um, your word, through communion, through being together, uh, would you just meet us here this morning? Knowing that there's people uh, who have little to no expectation, who just kind of rolled in here this morning, I ask Holy Spirit that you would uh, meet that person all the way to the person who's just expecting and excited and longing for more of your presence, would you meet that hunger that's, that you've been producing inside of them? So would you meet us this morning? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so I don't know if you know this, but there, there's two types of grandparents in the world. I'm kind of learning this. Um, there, there's the grandparents who uh, maybe are a little short-sighted. You know, they, 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 they have these beautiful grandbabies who just want all these gifts, and they buy them gifts, right? Like, I want a bike. So they buy them a bike, or they, they want an Xbox, so they buy them an Xbox, right? That ones who are just like, you know, they've been, they've been building up their retirement for years just to bless the grandparents, right? So there's these kinds of grandparents, and then there's uh, kind of the maybe, uh, I don't know how to say this, maybe wise grandparents who don't necessarily bless them with all the things they want right now, but you know, they throw a bunch of money into their college fund, or uh, I don't know, set the kids up for their future. Um, anyways, there's two kind of types of grandparents in the world. I, I, I don't know about you, but I had the grandparents who just blessed me with all this stuff um, early on, so it's great. It's, it's all good. At the end of the day, the grandparents love the grandbabies, and we just take it all. So, but one of the interesting things is, at least, at least for you, I don't know if your grandparents did this, but if your grandparents just gave you a bunch of stuff early on, or if they didn't give you a bunch of stuff, you wanted all the, you just want a bike from grandma, and it didn't come a bike, and you went, hey, what did grandma give me for my birthday? Well, she put some money in your college fund. 
Like as a seven year old hearing that, you're like, okay. Like I don't care. Like I want a huffy. Like I want to ride my bike around. I want pegs on the back. I want to put my friends on my pegs on the back of my bike. I don't care about college, right? But what you need in that moment is you need a bigger perspective. Like you need to see something, this gift that your grandparents are giving you, but you need it from a higher perspective. In a lot of ways, that's what sacraments are, or ordinances, or whatever you want to call that. And that's what communion is. It's this gift from God for us to be experienced, but we need to have the right, proper perspective. Otherwise, it just kind of becomes numb, and it feels just like, you know, maybe it's just something Grandma gave us to the future, and I don't really know what it is. And, I, and trust me, when I hear the word sacrament or ordinance, it just smells like religion. You know what I'm saying? It smells like something I got to do to make God like me, something I have to participate in to get right with God once again. And I'm like, yo, I've been saved by grace, through faith. I don't need any of that. But a sacrament is actually a means of God's grace. That's actually exactly what it means. It's, it's, it's something that God has put in place as a means for us to know and experience it. So here, here at Trinity, we have, we, we, we adhere to two sacraments or two ordinances. One is baptism and one is communion. And what these things are, that they're physical demonstrations of a spiritual reality. So with baptism, right, like you don't actually get buried and then be resurrected in baptism, right? But it's this act of being immersed and then risen as physical participation with what spiritually happened to you. And communion is the same. We are embodied creatures and we need physical demonstration to fully experience this spiritual reality. So that's what we're going this morning. We're going to talk about communion or the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist, all interchangeable, but I will be mostly using the phrase communion because I think that's what we long for. And whether you know it or not this morning, that's what your heart's desire more than anything else is communion or union with Jesus. We long to experience and know God's grace as more than just a theory or a theology, but as something that is a reality and a felt experience in our life. We long for communion with Jesus, and that's what the sacraments are all about. That's what communion is all about, to commune with Jesus. But most of the time, we tend to diminish these gifts, don't we? In a lot of ways, it's because we can't put it in a nice, tidy little box. Right? We, can't, we, can't put it, we can't explain it perfectly. And it's why one of the most crucial elements to your discipleship and following of Jesus is to learn how to embrace the mystery of God. We have to learn how to embrace the mystery of who God is and what God does. Right? I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4. He says this, This is how you ought to regard us, servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. I love that. It's not a servant of Christ and the person who has God all figured out, but it's, it's a servant of Jesus and a steward of all that is mysterious about God. And hear me, God is not altogether mysterious, right? He has revealed himself in his word. He has revealed himself in the person of Jesus. But for us to embrace and experience all that communion is for us, we have to learn how to embrace and sit in the mystery of God, to sit in our own limitations and our humanity and our finiteness as we sit in God's infiniteness and his infinite goodness towards us. We have to be okay with a little bit of mystery. Okay, because mystery creates space for transcendence. And that's what communion really is, right? It's this transcendent participant act that we uh, get to do together, right? It's transcendent. Every other part of this gathering that you walk into, you can kind of write off. as like everybody else does it, right? Like me talking here at a microphone. Like, have you heard of a TED Talk? Like, everybody does it, right? Everybody here is teaching. 
We're all taught by something or someone. We all have words, even music to an extent. People all the time have emotional experiences at concerts or whatever that is. Music is not altogether Christian. Or even the fellowship, as we come together and we gather, no one is like pro-loneliness, right? People know that this is good for us. But communion and baptism, they're these two things that we step into that are just altogether transcendent that we can't fully wrap our minds around, that no psychologist would walk in and be like, yeah, the communion thing makes sense. I get that, that they eat the body and drink the blood and that's really good for them. Like, I get that. Like, no, it's transcendent. It's altogether higher than we can think or imagine. It's more beautiful than just the ordinary, but it's the supernatural spiritual activity. And I think we miss it a lot of the times, right? And we can overdo this for sure. Like, we don't believe that it's the actual body and actual blood of Jesus, but we don't think that it's just a symbol either. And if we are prone to fall into one pit or the other, we're prone to fall into just walking through communion as this numb, boring activity that we just do again and again and again without actually realizing what's actually happening in that moment. Because maybe we're missing something, right? Like even the early church, like Acts 2.42, when they're like, what did the early church do? What did the first disciples of Jesus do? Well, they, they, they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. Yeah, I got that, baby. We're going we're gonna to hear sermons. We're going to listen to stuff. I'm all for that. They, 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 they did fellowship. They gathered together. They hung out. They did friendship. For sure. They prayed. Absolutely. We're on board. You know what the fourth thing was? They broke bread in their homes. Communion. Like communion is one of the centric forces. It was one of the big four things that they were participating in in the early church. I even heard this pastor in India who was kind of poking fun at American Christianity. And he's like, you guys are so funny. Like you guys travel all around the world to hear all these speakers, to hear all these teachers. He's like, you know what we get excited for here? We don't know. We, have, we know nothing about a super good teacher. What we get excited for is communion together. I don't know. I, when, when, I, when I hear those two things, I think one sounds a little bit more biblical than the other. And it's communion. So are we, miss, are we missing something here is all that I'm asking. And one of the reasons I think we tend to miss it is because we have this unrealized understanding of God's manifest presence. And before you go all weird on me, I think that's a little kooky. Look, there, there, there's two types of God's presence. There's his omnipresence, which means God is all places, all the time. We're just saying it. Where can you go from the spirit? He's everywhere. Right? He, 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 he's every place. There's no place you've ever been that he hasn't already been. He's there, he's omnipresent, he's all places, all the time, there's nowhere on this planet he hasn't been. But there's also this thing that we see all throughout the scriptures is God's manifest presence. It's what we see in the Old Testament when, it, when his spirit or his presence would fill the temple, right? That's God's manifest presence. It's a special sense of God's nearness that comes as we pray or we worship or we seek the Lord together. And that's what communion is meant to be. It's meant to be an experience of God's manifest Presence where we enjoy and find nourishment for our spirits as we feast on the body and the blood of Jesus. So what is communion? Well, it started with Jesus. It started on Jesus' last night here on earth. The last supper, right? We've seen the pictures. He says this, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until fulfillment, until it is in its fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And after taking the cup, he gave thanks. He said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until the kingdom comes. And he took the bread and he, fed, and he gave thanks and he broke it. And he said to them, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, in the supper, he took the cup. And he poured it. And he said, this, is, this cup is the new covenant which is poured out for you. And then the disciples, they, they, they reenacted this. 
They broke bread in their homes. And it's what Paul just said. He said, and when he'd given thanks, Jesus said this, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread or drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we see three general movements as we look through communion. And this is like the best practical thing because we're literally going to do it in a second. But, 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 but stay with me as we, as we walk through these three movements of communion. There's examining. We examine ourselves. We remember. We look back. And we wait as we look forward. So one, we examine. Um, I don't know about you, but my natural tendency uh, with communion is to probably come about it and jump just right into the spiritual stuff. But one of the things I love that Paul says, right? He says that Austin just read is we need to examine ourselves. We don't want to say the same things we should pray and pray the same things we should pray, but we need to uh, embrace the freedom of Jesus and come with what we actually have. That makes sense. One of the things that we say here all the time is, is don't, don't, don't leave your stuff at the door, but we want to bring our full selves into worship. And that's expressed in communion. If we examine ourselves, we look inward. Right? It's what Paul says. He says, so then whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. He said, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. He's saying, before you take this bread, before you drink this cup, you should test yourself. You should, dis- you should discern yourself. You should look inside of yourself. And it's a charge right off the bat not to just go through the motions, but to approach this moment with reverence and awe. I love how Eugene Peterson says it in the message. He says, examine your motives. Test your heart. Come to this meal in holy awe. But if we're honest, doing an inner examination most of the time is pretty scary. Like, it's why we are, like, flooded with busyness, why we rush around all the time, where we're always in a hurry. And, like, to be American is to be busy, and to be busy is to be important. And all of this is because most of the time we're trying to just avoid ourselves. Because there's this inner darkness, there's this inner stuff that's going on inside of you that you don't really want to deal with. But communion, it plunges itself into your story every single week just to say, stop. Pause. Examine yourself. How are you actually doing? What's actually going on on the inside of you? What's your thought life like? Who are you really? Who are you pretending to be? Right? It says, who are you trusting? What are you trusting to satisfy your soul? Who are you trusting to save you? Who are you worshiping? What, what has your attention? What has your awe right now? Is it Jesus or, or what is it? And here's the thing. As we, as, we, as we ask these questions, as we look inward through examination, we have to understand God's heart. This is not a pointed finger, but this is an invitation. Right? We have to understand his heart as we come into examination. As Dane Orland, he says this, Jesus is not harsh, reactionary, easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. So examination is meant to be an invitation to deeper freedom. Jesus' heart is why we can be sure that everything the Holy Spirit brings to mind in these moments is never condemning, but always for your freedom. So it's not a moment just to sit in shame and wallow and weep in your pity, but it's actually um, to, to lift us up to experience the invitation of healing. I love what Henry Nowen says. He says this, the, the part of us that is weak, broken, or poor suddenly becomes the place where we can begin new. Jesus says, be in touch with your sinfulness. Be in touch with your brokenness. Turn to God because the kingdom is close at hand. If you're ready to listen to your brokenness, then something new can come forth inside of you. 
That's what examination is for. It's to get in touch with your brokenness. It's to get in touch with your weaknesses so that you might actually look up towards Jesus because the Holy Spirit longs to create new life in you, but there's a bunch of muck and stuff in the way. Because the more in touch you are with your brokenness, the more in touch you can be with the good news of the Gospels. Why John says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. So because examining yourself will lead to confession, and confession is connected to cleansing. And cleansing leads to healing, which ultimately leads to worship. Ultimately leads to loud praises. So, Big news in our in our house the past couple of weeks, okay? Uh, Blakely just learned how to jump. Big news, okay? I told Grandma, we don't need the college fund, okay? You buy whatever you want because we are uh, scholarship bound because she can jump already. She's almost two, okay? But, but here's what happened when she started to jump, okay? Uh, she was trying really hard. I was trying to show her, not greatly, but I was trying to show her how to jump, and she kind of would barely get off the ground, and I'm like, babe, you're doing so good. And then one of her grandmas got her a trampoline, okay? in the garage, and when she started to do the trampoline, she started to realize something. I saw it click in her eyes, okay? She started to realize that the lower she would go, the higher she'd be able to go up, right? She, she realized that the deeper she would go into the trampoline, the, the, the more that launched her up. And now she's flinging herself all over the trampoline, like it's crazy, okay? She loves it, she loves the trampoline. Jumps, 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 like that's all she talks about. But it started with her learning that she had to go lower in order for her to go higher. And that's what worship, that's, that's why we do this. That's why we have rhythms and flows in worship, by the way. That's how it's ought to be. That the deeper we go, the higher we can actually go up. Right? Because we long to be an expressive, worshiping church. Right? Like we think if the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of joy that fills our hearts, it ought to make its way up to our faces and out to our hands. And if we can celebrate the zoo touchdowns, we can celebrate the risen Lord Jesus. You feel me? Right? Like we should be able to do that. We should have a little bit of excitement as we sing praise to God. But it's not this superficial praise. It's not a praise that just is like, yeah, whatever's happening around here, I'm just going to try to sing happy thoughts. But it's actually this deep worship that embraces all of the brokenness that's right now, currently inside of you, and all of the brokenness that's all around us, and it still lifts us up to Jesus, and it actually has the ability to go higher, because the deeper you go, the more it can launch you up. It drives us deep to launch us up. Examination, it takes us low. It produces humility in us and then launches us up into praise and adoration of Jesus. And it actually takes yourself out of the equation and it allows us just to see him and him alone. You're able to examine your inner anxiety, not not ignore it, but you're able to look it right in the face and then you're able to sing praise to the God of peace who gives you transcendent peace. It allows you to look at your fear and your uncertainty and your controlling patterns and habits and look it right in the face and then allow Jesus to meet you in that moment and then sing worship and praise to the God who holds all of your days in his hand, who's worthy of trust and surrender. It removes you from the situation and sets you free to worship and love and live for him. But what starts with current examination takes us back to remember, right? That's what Paul continues on. He says, and he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is broken for you and do this in remembrance of me. See, the crux or the center of communion is remembering. It draws us back. Even though we look at our current moment, it draws us back. And can I be honest with you? Like, if there's one thing I'm bad at, it's remembering. Like, if there's one weakness, you're like, hey, what's your main weakness? Forgetting everything all the time, right? Like, I got some childhood wounds here. I'm just going to be honest with you. As a kid, people used to tell me, Cam, if your head was not attached to your body, you would forget it. 
Okay, like I got some. I, I have to hit everything. Okay, uh, Kayla's like first four years and probably next twenty years of marriage are just going to be just the Holy Spirit producing all kinds of patience in her because I just forget everything. Right. I've actually talked to a couple dudes this week who I just admire a ton because they don't use iCal. Okay, praise God for iCal. Like I don't know what I would do without the iCalendar. Like. There'd be some stuff for the first two years of marriage before iCal, pre-iCal came, and post-iCal came, where Caleb said, hey, we got this dinner Thursday night. I said, got it, babe. Thursday night rolls around. Uh, babe, we got dinner. Oh, I forgot. Like, time and time and time. Again, right? Praise God for the iCal. Now, scapegoat. Babe, if it's not the iCal, you didn't say it, doesn't matter, because it's got to be the iCal, right? So all you people who just write down your calendars, you're crazy and amazing, and that's kudos to you, because I forget everything. And we all kind of do, right? I might be worse than you, but we tend to forget all the time. It's why, like, the second uh, most given command in all of the Bible is remember. First is do not fear, but second, a close second, remember. Right? Here's all, all three. Here's just some examples from Deuteronomy. One book alone. But do not be afraid, but remember well what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all of Egypt. Deuteronomy 8. But remember the Lord your God. For it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant. Deuteronomy 24, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. So in a culture that wants more and more and is on this ongoing pursuit of what's next, we discipline ourselves to remember. And this happens in, in two ways, one in a broad sense and one in a much more specific sense. One in a broad sense that it says, hey, uh, remember, every time you remember, you proclaim the year of the Lord's death. So there's a specific remembering that we, the scandalous news that God died for humanity, but there's also this broad remembrance. It says, do this in remembrance of me, just to remember Jesus and his goodness to you. So uh, Chip and Dan Heath wrote this book a couple years ago. It's called The Power of Moments. I talk about it all the time because I really like this book. But basically the whole premise of the book was that your life is defined by Moments that as you look back and you tell your story to people, it's not just like, oh, yeah, there was this day at nine o'clock and I had a cup of coffee, right? Like, you don't say that. But there's these moments that define our life and they shape our narrative and they shape the way that we move forward. Moments shape us. Moments are the things that move us. And there's this, there's this, uh, there's this story of this famous mathematician. I've said this story before, but his name is Blaise Pascal. And, um, he was basically this nominally Christian dude who had this crazy encounter with God. And he wrote it down. He called it the memorial. And he actually sewed it onto his coat because he didn't want to forget it. Okay? This is what it said. It said, fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers nor the wise. God of Jesus Christ. Forgiveness, forgetfulness of all the world except for God. So he had this, this crazy encounter. He wrote it in his journal. And he sewed it on his coat so he wouldn't forget it. What my boy Blaze is tapping into here is a moment is just a moment unless we remember it. This moment that our souls long for, it wouldn't just stay that unless Blaze, he writes it in his coat to say, hey, I, want, I need to remember this because there's going to be days when I'm, I'm going to be moving forward. I'm going to have to look back at this. I'm not trying to say we need to be the people who are like the good old days people. We're always saying like, ah, I remember how it used to be. Those were the good old days, right? I remember. Not that, but actually the exact opposite. Okay? Because, see, to look back is actually the thing that gives us confidence to move forward, to look back into where God has been faithful to you is actually the thing that drives you and pushes you and sustains you through the rest of your life. I don't know about you, but man, I love talking to, I don't know how to say this, uh, more mature Christians, older people, okay? I love talking to older people who've been walking with God for a long time because there's just this ease about it. I don't know if you've experienced this, but 
but there's just this, this simplicity to their life that they, they, they feel that it, stuff just rolls off their shoulders. And I had this friend on this conversation with an older guy, and he was kind of sharing his heart and sharing some struggles, and he looked across the table at the guy and said, man, you just have, you just have more faith than me. And the old guy, he looks back at him and he goes, nah, man, I've just experienced, I just have a lot of experiences with the faith of God. I love that, man. He's saying it's not my willpower. I don't just have this innate trust in God, but I've seen him again and again be faithful to me. See, to remember is to, is, is to pull back on what God has done in and for and through you. And it pulls us forward to say, he'll do it again. He's faithful. He's true. He's, he's good. See, to remember, it even, it even gets, it gets in touch with your own story, to look at your own life, to see the gradual gains you've made. You ever just look at yourself and like, man, I'm just not who I want to be right now. But sometimes we need to remember, we need to look back. Yeah, but I'm not who I was. But I've changed. But by God's grace, I've slowly become, I've become more patient over time when I look back. I've become more loving over time. I think about myself less over time. When we look at the gradual gains that God has produced in us. I love what Psalm 103 says. It says he redeemed my life from the pit. The psalmist is reminding himself, man, I was in a pit. I was living a life that was wayward and lost, and Jesus, he, he redeemed me. He pulled, pulled his hand in me, saved me, he set my feet on solid ground. What this does, it produces a thanksgiving in us. And again, it draws our eyes off of ourselves and say, God is doing something in my life, and it might not feel like it right now, but he's been good. He's changed me, and he'll continue to transform and change me. So there's a more broad way to remember, but there's also the specific thing that Jesus is tapping into here. And it's a moment to recount the cross. It's a moment to recount the greatest love act in human history. But there was actually an event before this where blood had saved God's people, right? And in the process of redeeming and liberating his people from Egypt and slavery, God and his justice, he, he, he set forth judgment upon the powers and the principalities and the rulers of Egypt. He said he was going to wipe out the firstborn of the entire country, right? But then God, he pulls Moses aside and he gives him some instructions. He says this, hey, each of you in each home, take a lamb, a spotless lamb without blemish, and sacrifice it. And he says, take the blood of the lamb and hang it over your doorpost. And as I come through, any house that has this blood of the lamb over it, I will pass over that house. So this is actually the meal right now that the disciples are celebrating, the Passover. Passover, where God passed over his people. And Jesus, he, he says he longs to share this meal with him. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to draw them into what he's about to do. He takes the cup, takes the bread, he says, this bread, this is my body. It's going to be broken for you. He takes the cup, he says, this is my blood, which is shed, will be shed for you. Jesus says, I'm the sacrificial lamb. I'm who John saw when he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. Or as Paul says, For Christ indeed, our Passover was sacrificed for us. That Jesus, the perfect Son of God, the one who was spotless and without blemish and blameless, entered into the human story, not as his triumphant king, but instead as a suffering servant ready to sacrifice for his people. Isaiah 53, some 700 years before Jesus, about Jesus, says this. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. 
like one from whom people hide their face and was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. It says this, that we've all like sheep gone astray. And it says that he who knew no sin, he became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God, that we enter into right relationship with God only through and by Jesus. It says that for your iniquities, for your sin, for your waywardness, he was crushed. For you to experience peace with God, he was punished so you never will be. For our brokenness to be healed and transformed, he suffered. And for by his wounds, we are healed. So every time we take this bread or we take this cup, we remember that my sin is forgiven. That there's a word that declared over your life, it's forgiven. And for me to know God, to be given a new identity, to be set free, to avoid the wrath of God, a body had to be broken and blood had to be shed, but it wasn't mine. And it never will be. It was his. It was Jesus and it was enough. It will always be enough. It was big enough. And it was wide enough. It was deep enough. And it was long enough. For while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And it's a reminder that he demonstrated his love for humanity as he lay on the cross. That's the good news of Jesus. That's the good news of the gospel. There's no more striving. There's no more earning. There's no more deserving. But we rest in Jesus' accomplished work on the cross, that's what he's talking about. He breaks the body and he pours out the blood. We don't need a couple of good days to get back right with God, but in that moment, we intake and we participate with the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So we remember, we look back, but we also wait for the future. The beauty of communion is it doesn't just remind us of the past, but it actually points us forward. It orients us in this future Hope, the Lord's Supper in and about itself is this act of hope. Verse 28 said this, right? Whenever you eat this bread or drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Until he comes. We proclaim the Lord's death. We remember, but it's anchored in the future. For now we remember, but someday he's coming back. It's why the Lord's Supper is primarily a celebration. It's not to be taken solemnly, but with celebratory. In fact, like the early church, they used to call it the agape feast. Like we're just feasting on love right here. That's what we're doing. Because they saw it as this moment to come around one another and celebrate what Jesus has done and what Jesus is going to do, what what is to come. That we celebrate. Because even though our story and situation might be messy right now, we know how the story ultimately ends. It's Jesus coming back to renew and redeem everything. The relational turmoil that we have, the inner angst, the anxiety will all be made new Jesus as he comes back to return everything. So this is in its uh, at its most basic fundamental level, it's an appetizer. It's just a little nibble off the crumb of the table for what we really long for. It's meant to actually create a deeper hunger in us for the coming of Jesus and his fullness when we feast with him in paradise. Then we, as we take this meal, we also look forward saying the best days are ahead of us. The best is yet to come. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we shall see face to face. He comes back to renew everything. So we first we examine, and then we look back and we remember. And we also look forward and long for what's coming. 
Let's pray.